Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show is the fourth episode of our five-part series on open banking. And today I have welcomed Edward Burks from Zero, David Watchell from Responsive, and Shad Davis from LiveCA onto the show to discuss a global contrast. Basically, these are companies that have done work in multiple jurisdictions, and they've seen what works and what doesn't work in different countries. And we do, yes, bring the focus back to Canada and what a horror show it is here. But nevertheless, there's some great insight onto into what's working around the world and what laggards like the Canadian market and other markets around the world need to do in order to make move things forward. And with that, here's my interview with Edward, David, and Shad. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. Fabulous. Excellent. Hi there. So let's get started by letting everybody explain who it is they are and what their experience in open banking is and what it is they do for a living. So let's start off. So we go around the circle again. David, who are you? What is it you do? And basically, what is your experience in open banking? Who am I? Um, I am a computer scientist that has been working in wealth and, uh, and investment management for the better part of my life. What Responsive does is we help the advisor-client relationship by turning data, whether it's open or not, into insight that's going to create better advice and therefore better outcomes and experiences for wealth clients. So in a nutshell, we aggregate data, we detect events and personalities, and then we provide uh, wealth advisors or insurance advisors or bank advisors for that matter with playable strategies that are going to do good things for their clients. Fantastic. And David was kind enough to be a guest way back on episode 27. For those of you who want to go learn more about Responsive, Edward. Hi, Jason. So uh, I'm Edward Burks. I work for a company called Zero, which is a uh, cloud accounting business in that we have approaching two and a half million small businesses around the world in the Americas and Canada, across Europe and out into Asia, particularly uh, Australia and New Zealand, who run their accounting and tax compliance on, on our platform. Much more than that, we enable those customers to get paid, make payments, access working capital when they need it. And it's in that context that open banking is actually strategically very important for us in all the regions in which we operate and uh, increasingly as a global issue. In terms of my experience, you can probably tell by, by my accent, I'm based in London mm -hmm. and I've been working very heavily with an entity called the Open Banking Implementation Entity out of the UK that's led open banking over here. And we're now something like two and a half years into the journey. And I'm sure we'll talk about kind of the, the UK experience, which is absolutely informing regulators and central bankers around the world as we speak. Yeah, I'm all for letting other people figure out where the mistakes are first. And uh, while well, Edward, this is your first time on the podcast, we did have another member of the team over there, Ben Stiles, uh, GM of Product for Financial Services, way back on episode 23 uh, for Zero. And now, Chad, yourself. Thanks for having me, Jason. My name's Chad Davis from Live CA LLP. We're a Canadian online accounting firm, and we help businesses that are typically making over a million dollars uh, or have a full year's worth of cash in the bank either replace their finance team with ours or allow us to be their finance team until such a time that uh, becomes necessary for them to hire internally. So we work a lot in tech. We have a lot of companies that are in this space that feel the pain of online banking and with customers in the UK and Australia and the United States, uh, but predominantly in Canada, uh, we feel the pain. So I'm really happy to share some of those experiences uh, today with you. Excellent. And Chad was also a guest way back on episode 35. So all of you guys were back, I think probably, yeah, we're back during my first year. This is episode 160 something. So it's been a while. Thanks for coming back. So gentlemen, open banking. Uh, this is the episode where we're kind of looking at the global contrast of approaches. So I'm just going to open up the floor and see who wants to chat about this first. But let's talk about what you've seen around the world and where do you feel or what, what market do you feel has done the best job of moving open banking forward thus far? 
I'll jump in. I'll say in an interesting way, I feel like it's Italy in Europe. And Europe primarily because the Europeans have figured out that data is a right. And that's because it actually, you know, theoretically pertains to your body, where you're buying things or what you're buying, you might put in your body. It might be about your health. It might be how you're moving. And so that data belongs to you. And that's something I really agree with. And so they've, they've created a framework in Europe for folks who are kind of behind on open banking rights and, and GDPR to liberate that data and let customers and consumers use that data for their best interest rather than the, the best interest of corporate surveillance to be radical about it. But Italy is an interesting case where there's a company called Nexi that we've just partnered with, and they have a very strong position in the market there. And they've collaborated with the regulatory authority to go to market with an open banking platform. So it hasn't been this debate about banks versus open banking versus fintechs. There's actually been a coordinated effort between these three pillars to to bring solutions to Italian consumers of financial services. And I think this is the strongest model where you can create a hub around a regulatory idea, get uh, traditional banks involved with fintechs and accelerate uh, innovation. Collaboration amongst all the parties. What a novel idea. Yeah. yeah. Edward, I'll let you uh, pop in there. Yeah, do you know, again, I feel acutely conscious. I don't want to kind of trumpet the European or the or the British position because it sounds like I'm kind of biased, but but I, I think it's a, a great starting point that David there. I would hope that listeners will be familiar, at least in concept, with the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. We've talked um, about it on several occasions, but yep. Uh, yeah, um, which, and actually look, to, to, to the credit of the EU as a block, I mean, I think they they have driven globally a higher bar in a whole bunch of areas like consumer protection and environmental regulation and and data regulation is certainly one of those. And so I think there's some of the movement. And again, I I actually really like this term consumer data rights. We talk about open banking, but actually it's, it's a recognition that consumers and businesses have rights about how their data is used, by whom, for what purpose. And so I think the European Banking Authority drove out a number of, of areas of legislation, the Payment Services Directive 1, and then more recently, what's called PSD 2, uh, which is the, the, the broadest incarnation of European open banking. But I think to the credit of the, of the Brits, they moved on this pretty early. And the big difference was that the British model actually defined an API stack for the banks to build against, rather than just having a set of capabilities and sort of leaving the market to work it out. And I think in the, in the second scenario, it's difficult to get everybody to collaborate, right? Because everybody wants competitive edge. Everybody wants some strategic advantage. So look, having seen firsthand the level of resistance from some of the big banks in the UK, undoubtedly what it has done is kind of got the ball rolling. So I think I'm a big fan of, of quite strong regulator-led approach, but actually bringing all of the constituent players along on the journey and helping them understand the upside for them is important, and I can see that playing out around the world as we speak. Again, I'm sure we'll talk some more about that on, on the show. Yeah, so uh, that's the one thing Europe is fantastic at innovating, regulation. And as much as that is a four-letter word in you know US and North American parlance, it doesn't have to be. Chad, let you weigh in. Great. So my experience is not global in terms of working with every country like like Edward and David might be, but I can tell you what my favorite countries to work with so far have been. And mm-hmm. it's been Australia, even though it's quite new uh, with the, the Data Act over there. Even the way that they call the uh, open banking in Australia, not even calling it open banking with, with their Consumer Data Right Act, um, feels like the right move too. And mm-hmm. Australia has always been a little bit further along on the accounting and banking spectrum than Canadians and Americans in the UK. And I think they're going to be pretty well positioned to roll this out right as well. I'm sure there's lots of things wrong. And while they're still in sort of stage one now, um, there's there's lots to do. But um, 
Every company we've ever worked with in Australia has been very enjoyable. The bank feeds have worked. Um, it was easy to send and receive money back and forth between different banks. And um, it's, it was been, it's been a dream to actually work with Australians. I hope that Canada can get to at least 40 or 50% of that sort of adoption rate of, of tech sometime. I hope that Canada can get to a fraction of what other people have accomplished. <laughs> Sadly, that is the bar in financial services far yes. too often in this country. Ah, deep breath. Okay, so that's, that's what's worked. Let's talk about what hasn't worked. Where are we seeing the biggest struggles around the world? I'm going to go reverse order. Chad, I wonder what you're going to say. Well, look, there's there's probably hundreds of other, there's probably a hundred other countries that have worse Let's banking. talk about developed markets. Yeah, that should, thank that you. should have their act together. Thank you. <laughs> and again, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm going to maybe come at the same angle as David <laughs> and Edward with, with that much global experience on this, but I'm happy to speak about Canada because... We are really lucky to work with some some of the larger companies that are frustrated with banking. Uh, Jason, you and I have worked together since the early days mm-hmm. and could probably knock down a keg with how many discussions we've had about your frustrations with the banking system. My liver could not survive that. Go on. Could not survive it. Exactly. Yeah. And our largest complaint is access. And we must put our own procedures in in order to circumvent that. So there are accounting firms that do not gain access to their clients' bank accounts. We're not one of those kind of clients. We like to do this. So we we manage passwords. We manage user logins. We advocate for cash management services and grabbing our own login in order to complete the bare bones work that an accountant needs to complete, whether it's bookkeeping, you know, investigating transactions, keeping bank feeds up inside of accounting systems. It's a full-time job. And I can tell you that the impact to us personally with a solid, reliable access to an accounting system from a bank could probably save us a few full-time employees in costs so we can put those into other areas of the business to be more efficient and effective. Couldn't imagine what the global or so the, the national impact of that's going to be on other areas of efficiency. But for our company, which has 70 employees, could you imagine what the impact would be on ones that have thousands? And when you think about it, I mean, the reality is there are countless accountants and bookkeepers out there who act on behalf of, of their, their employers or their, their clients. And every time we give a password, we're violating our fraud protection. Like that's, that's just a nonsensical stance to take. And I will always come back to the fact that we already have this thing in Canada called uh, Pepita or Pepita, whatever you want to call it, which basically guarantees people the right to their data on request. And thus far, the bank's method for how they get the data, we get the data, is to basically crawl over broken glass. It's like you can have it. It's gonna suck. Anyway, let's move on. Edward, who where where let's 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 focus primarily on the developed markets besides Canada. Who's getting it wrong? Where are the challenges uh, that you're seeing? Yeah, I, I think I think first we should qualify that there is a the whole world of innovation that's taking place in Asia. And again, you know, to generalize about about Asia with the different regulatory regimes you have over there is kind of tough. But it's it's easy always, I think, in these in these conversations, maybe not to kind of pay as much attention as, as one should. There, I should be kind of open that that zero plays predominantly in in English language speaking regions, and so it's. It's kind of the Americas, Canada, um, areas of Europe, and, and, and kind of Australia, New Zealand, as Chad has talked about, with which I'm most familiar. And look, I, I think the, the region with the kind of clearly the biggest economic potential and the biggest scope to gain 
from modernization of uh, data exchange feels like the US to me. And there is an awful lot going on more broadly in what one might think of as fintech in the US. And so there's a vibrant fintech economy, and it's kind of coming up pretty quickly to compete with Europe and Asia. But there's just been a, a real reticence, I think, for regulatory intervention, which, and there's a strong political dimension to that, which which may now, I think, change for, for what I hope we might think of as, as, as the better from a purely from a data exchange perspective, at least. But yeah, I, th- I think regulators and, and actually the, the regulatory system in the US is incredibly comp- complex with its federal and kind of state structures. So yeah, like I, I, th- I think with the sheer predominance of people paying by check, for example, which just feels like anathema oh, uh, to people from other parts of the world, that, that feels crazy. And then, and then again, I want to be sensitive, but frankly, from the engagements we've had with uh, the big Canadian banks that even if there was an appetite to share data digitally, the preparedness of Canadian banks to do it is is shockingly limited, as, as best as I can tell. And I'm choosing my words. I want to be diplomatic. Shocking to whom? You don't live here. You haven't seen how they behave normally. So it's not wow. shocking to the rest of us. So I think, there's, I think there's upside there. And I think some of the right noises are being made by regulators. I think the banks themselves would like to come into a digital world. But it's I, frankly, I'm still trying to work out as an outsider quite why it's, it's taking so long. So yeah, look, the Americas broadly for me feel like the area that has has the greatest potential to uh, to, to improve. Yeah, it's interesting for a country that hates regulation so much. The Americans sure have a lot of it. David, over to you. I don't know if you guys have heard of something called the Streisand Rule. This is something that uh, emerged in the late '90s, and it's the idea that if whether or not you're China or whether or not you're a Canadian bank, the more you try to stop the flow of information, the more that information is going to flow. Mm-hmm. And I think in North America, particularly the Canadian market. Consumers have been let down. Fintechs have been let down by the banking establishment here. And this isn't controversial to say, actively slowing down the process of open banking. Let's just say that they're actively slowing it down. And so that means that like, and the really sad thing here is there's, there's a lot of leading fintechs in Canada, Wealthsimple, others, really great companies that have been chomping at the bit to collaborate. And so if you're a company like me, you may have talked to a company that just launched a really cool payment product a few days ago. They're interested in collaborating. You may be collaborating with a company, an open banking platform owned by Visa. So in the end, the same things are going to happen. It's just you're, gonna, you're not going to have that partnership. So I think at this stage, it's just, you know, like we, we've collaborated with Finnish banks, Italian payment platforms, small RAs in Canada. There's a world of collaborators. And when you say, no, we own this data, we own our customers, it's this isn't going to fly anymore. And consumers are going to start voting with their money and with the service they go to. And it's going to be a very easy decision to make. Like it's, it's, I think it's going to be a rude awakening 2021 for these banks that they've held the gate so far because they just have the franchise and they have the ability to dominate the client and dominate the market. It's going away. It's, it's gone. Like once you have Google doing payments for you and it's not some weird paper process where you can't do things on your big five bank account, like nobody cares. Nobody has to go to these banks and they need to wake up right now and figure out who they're going to collaborate with. And I'll say that boldly. I don't really care if I never collaborate with the Canadian bank because they're trash. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, they're trash. And they, they need to hear that from me first. I don't care if I ever collaborate with them. Ever. I don't care if I'm cutting that business off because they're trash and they need to focus on their consumers and their collaborations. They're not doing that. And I'm sorry. They only focus on the consumers so much as they can extract money out of the wallet. Now I'm starting a podcast called the heretic where I say things that everybody's thinking, but people are too afraid to say, and and you can quote me on that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> so here's the thing. And I'm going to be like, Chad, yeah. I saw you want to comment there. Before I go, and I think you're, you kind of nailed something. And it comes down yeah. to over time, like, the Streisand effect is about information, but it also, yeah. you know, it's, it's basically information spring on the internet. And yeah. here's the thing. You know how many times I've had the question of why can't they get the Apple credit card in Canada, right? Yeah. And this is, you know, when Apple Pay was announced, the banks, it's well known, CEOs decided to have a conference call the next day to figure out how they're going to play defense. They literally colluded in a manner that is considered illegal in other countries to yeah. prevent that from happening in Canada. This is why we do not have Apple Pay Cash in Canada. We do not have the ability to hold cash balances because Apple's not been able to find a dance partner on this because they've been boxed out. This is why we do not have the credit card because there's not enough vendors in Canada to help to support them. And yes, Google just la is launching checking services. They're actually testing services in, I think it's in Houston, whereby you can pay for your parking straight through. Google Maps, right? Like this level of integrated finance, which is happening everywhere else around the world that the banks will never be able to accomplish in Canada. You're right. Sooner or later, everybody else starts looking and saying, why do we suck so badly? And it's not just the people on this call anymore. <laughs> it's everybody. Chad, please. Chime okay, in. I just say one more thing. I'm sorry, one, thing. one last thing for David. And, and, and here's a spoiler alert. Big tech is better at lobbying government to change regulation than banks are. So they're going to even lose in that this country. I don't know about well, that. Oh, they're <laughs> everywhere, everywhere. So what, look out, Scout. <laughs> Fair enough. I want to hear uh, David's opinion either on his podcast or today <laughs> around uh, around TDs suing of Plaid. I know I laughed pretty hard when I saw that come. I out have last not month. seen that. What's going on? TD? Wait, wait. TD's suing Plaid for what? Well, the official verbiage, which I think you can read between the lines here, is that they're claiming copyright infringement for misrepresenting the TD logo and gathering oh, people's geez. information and then selling data. What but the subcontext, I think, is what we're all really looking after. So uh, from the honest man himself, David, how do you feel about that? <laughs> I mean, look, look, they're a business, right? They got to stay afloat. That, that's the beginning of a negotiation of pay to play as a platform with Plaid. So there's, there's, there's signal, that's the Canadian market signaling, hey, you want to use our infrastructure, you got to pay a little bit. I don't know if I hate that. I hate the way they did it. They should have just called the, 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 the head of global business development and said, you know what, you guys got to pay a little bit to access our platform and we'll, we'll, we'll build an API with you the way it's being done in Europe. But they did it the Canadian way, which is uh, we Extract own Extract your toll. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, Edward, and, and right. to bring Edward back into this too, yeah. there's a known issue with TD Bank and HubDoc, which was recently acquired by Zero, And, you know, that feed has been off for many, many, many months with no, no end in sight and, and a, you know, a directive from Zero itself to say, sorry, you're sort of SOL. We're trying to work on this, but we can't make it work. Uh, you'll have to do things manually. And, with and for listeners who don't understand what a HubDoc is, HubDoc is a service that will pull your statements from anywhere. So essentially, they're even blocking the ability for, you to take, for, for, for people to take a PDF of a statement out of their system. Tell me why that here. makes sense. Like, I actually have friends in management at TD who, whom I love dearly, but at the same time, like, at least when they get drunk, they admit the truth. The reality is, what in God's name, what maniacal evil person is thinking this up? Anyway, move on. Moving on. Edward, let, let answer, let's let you answer Chad's question. Yeah, hey, look, I, 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 think, I think, David, you, you hit the nail on the head for me. We have to believe that the market will, will kind of win out. Now, where that doesn't always work well is if there's strong protectionist 
collaborative moves against it. Yeah. And you'll notice I have not said anything on this podcast that suggests that there is. I've observed absolutely, I mean, in, in the UK market, for example, the capability that Chad refers to, which is called a, a bank feed, and it, it sounds terribly dry if you're outside of the space, but it's just really foundational for a business to understand its financial position. It has to be able to pull banking data, potentially from multiple bank accounts and payment accounts into one place and, and, and consolidate that view. And in the olden days, people would literally manually transpose data from a, a paper bank statement, and then it would kind of get scanned using OCR or something as the next phase. But, but latterly, that's been done via screen scraping and then, and then via secure API. And that's a use case that's addressed by open banking now in the UK. What we saw in the early days of that journey, though, was that there were some banks that would absolutely resist it, and then other banks that were just a little more enlightened. And we saw in the early stages in the UK, banks like HSBC and you know, Barclays came on board fairly early. Chad, there were accounting firms in the UK who actively migrated their customers away from Bank X to Bank Y mm -hmm. on the availability of that feature. And so I think if there is a bit of a truism, I think that there's a herd instinct in well-established banks in, in most jurisdictions. And once you get that first domino toppling, it's difficult for the other banks not to follow because because customers just favor that bank on that basis. So, so, so I, I, I want to see that first that first domino topple in, in Canada. And it's happening. We, we already work, I should say, with CIBC, by the way. But 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 yes, there needs to be more movement. In, so, uh, in Edward, let me ask you something. Uh, and I'll go over to Chad. In the countries you've operated in, have you noticed the correlation between number of players in the market and the ones who are willing to move first? Because there's a Canada's not exactly great when it comes to bank concentration. I, I, I spoke about this previously in a previous podcast as to when you look at the number, the amount of the business controlled by the top three banks, and when you expand it to the top five, it's basically almost the entire market. Given their position, like have you seen better outcomes in countries where there's higher degrees of competition, even if they're even if those banks are small? I think the short answer is yes, and I think there's a little bit of nuance here. Again, I'll kind of declare a position that um, and hopefully Chad and I are reasonably well aligned on this. Our customers tend to be small businesses, but, but kind of not sole traders, not micro businesses. They tend to employ people. They pay kind of higher rate taxes, and so they have slightly more sophisticated financial services needs. Banking generally has sucked for those customers for a long time because corporates can afford to pay bigger fees and retail customers, consumers kind of get well served and they get digital apps and, and, and there's money to be made there. And, and so that mid-market piece has been kind of the poor relation. And certainly something that's a very, very real movement in Europe is the extent to which neobanks are changing expectations mm -hmm. there. So there are banks out of London, like Monzo and Tide and Revolut and Starling, all of whom have multiple hundreds of thousands of customers now. And so they really are beginning Millions, to make Millions, actually. I mean, last I saw on Revolut, it was like 8 million customers, I think. So, uh, so and again, I should qualify, that's business customers. So ah, yes. uh, absolutely. You know, Revolut, I think at one point, were winning 25,000 customers a day. And, and so the, you know, the growth in these banks is, is kind of huge. But e even in that, that small business sector, they are just changing customer expectations. And again, certainly 90% of zero customers are engaged with an accountant or bookkeeper. And what we see is accountants who are like huge fans of Monzo or huge fans of Revolut, and they're actively migrating their customers to those platforms in preference for the, the traditional banks. And so, yes, I think there's where there's less concentration of banks and where there's more presence of competition, I think we're seeing better outcomes. Yeah, I mean, what, what, a, what a novel idea that competition actually breeds innovation and better outcomes. Chad? I wanted to uh, draw down on your UK comment a bit, uh, Edward, because I have a dear friend named uh, Will Farnell out of Farnell Clark out of Norwich. And, uh, of course. Yeah, and I was chatting with him recently and you know, just getting a 
status of what's happening in the UK. And I wanted to hear sort of the under the hood truths of what accountants are dealing with with banks, because as you know, Barclays was one of the first to deal with the direct feed. And when open banking came in, there were some hiccups, things switched over. And then Barclays introduced their PinCentury card reader and the mobile app to validate logins. So with open banking coming in, Will and his team have to validate the two-factor authentication every, I think it was three months. Yeah. yeah well, every, for, for a couple of things, every three, three, every three months. But over thousands of clients, they've had to hire additional people just to do that work or outsource it. So he's obviously very into the neobank situation over there. And I asked him which bank he's moving the majority of his customers over to. And while he appreciates the same ones that you've mentioned there, to kind of stick with big banks, they've been moving to metal through NetWest and and using their neobank type of uh, type of offering with a direct integration with Zero, et cetera, et cetera. And it's been working really well for him. That rings bells. Again, I think coming right back up to the top level theme of the podcast today, you know, open banking, I don't think anybody who is deeply involved in the open banking movement would shy away from the fact that a lot of the original drive is around retail customers. And so if you think about the ability to impact financial inclusion, competition, innovation, when we talk about the consumer data, right, there's a clue in the C part of that, right? That it's it's about consumers. And a lot of the requirements on things like authentication, you know, a lot of what consumers do is kind of one-off payments, right? Or maybe they're setting up recurring payments. The frequency with which one needs to go in and authenticate doesn't translate well for businesses who want to have a an enduring connection to a bank, for example. And so another example is, is like one-off payments versus batch payments. So as a consumer, I might want to pay my plumber or my decorator or but as a business, again, I might want to pay employees and do payroll, and that those are very different structures of payments. So without being too much of an open banking fanboy, I will say that, yeah, they were kind of slow to catch on, but actually there's lots of review of those speed bumps that I think will make it better. And, and, and I, I think in part, frankly, because again, the neobanks particularly are working on slightly different infrastructure, for example, exactly as you've said, Chad, building directly to zero. Mm-hmm. And so whilst they have open compli- open banking compliant feeds, the user experience is just frankly a lot better than over the uh, vanilla open banking infrastructure. David, I know you saw it, so you wanted to make a comment there. Yeah, I, I think when we're talking about competition in financial services, we're talking about competition for trust. And so more competition for trust is better. And I think in financial services, there's two directions of trust that you can compete on. You can compete on trust for mindless financial services. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, financial services, you don't have to think about that are reliable, that when you tap, you're going to get a payment, it's going to go through. So this is a place I think banks and larger businesses can succeed and NEOs are succeeding because they make things so convenient and easy that it's mindless. You don't need to think about it. And then there's mindful trust. And if you look at the RAA market in the US, this is similar to the the mid-market mass affluent point Edward was making. You have the folks who are really in there, in the trenches, helping their clients through hard times, helping their clients solution with multiple products and services, coming up with larger strategies. So I think what's really exciting about open banking is it it enables these mid-market players who are servicing this underserviced mass affluent group who need more care, more strategies, better ideas in real time. The competition in that space from independence is really cool. And it kind of levels the playing field for the independent wealth manager or advisor versus these massive Leviathan institutions that used to win on the basis of just a distribution home court advantage. So 
really excited for competition coming from uh, independent advisors. Yeah, that does make for a great corollary. I mean, the honest yeah. truth is it's funny because I feel like the American psyche and other financial advisors is so much more advanced than the Canadian one in that you hear I hear plenty of advisors out there saying like, oh, it's really hard for me to beat the banks. And my response is, why are you playing their game? Like yeah. the reality is if you're trying to play a mass market, little to no value game or perceived value without actual deep relationship, you're going to lose. I mean, in any marketplace, the profits polarize around two ends. They polarize around mass market, which basically makes it out very thin margins and massive volumes. And the other end of the spectrum, which is high touch, high service. There's a reason the Four Seasons exists with despite its premium price, right? And that's, you know, in large part, what most of the RAAs have discovered in the US is that, you know, they cater to anywhere between 60 to 100 households on a very deep level, a model that I follow in Canada specifically because I know that's the way to win. But yeah, you're right. I think the end of the day, there's that the you know open banking ecosystem will allow more of that innovation on the service extreme to basically take over and maybe maybe just maybe in these countries banking will stop to su- stop sucking so much inshallah it's the saudis <laughs> there we go edward you popped up what's uh anything to add there yeah, you know, it's kind of curious actually on, on, on one particular, what you might think of as a, as a use case or, or an application of, of open banking around streamlining access to capital, actually both for individuals, mm-hmm. but also for businesses. I was kind of keen to hear what the Canadian experience has, has, has been. And, and, and I'll just kind of frame up by saying that I guess through COVID, and we've managed to get to 40 minutes into this session, I think, and uh, before we've mentioned COVID, I hope that's not banned on the show in some way. I'll go um, for it. <laughs> yeah, it, there was a perfect storm for business customers wanting to access capital. And that was that the employees of banks were based from home, oftentimes without even a VPN connection back to, back to their systems. And there was suddenly like this you know, 10x increase in the volumes of inbound inquiries for, for, for lending for the banks. There were a number of the UK banks and then, of course, the digital lenders who were really well placed to streamline the kind of application and validation elements of those uh, of that lending activity, not least through taking advantage of open banking. So a lot of the part where you would give access to your bank statements, right, was is very very easy to do, and I can only imagine would have been hard in Canada in the absence of that. So just just keen to see whether there were any kind of COVID learnings that that may have changed the trajectory of open banking in uh, in Canada from your perspective. The um, so so Chad, you want to answer what you said, Edward? Makes perfect sense. That companies move fast and they you know they're they're enabled digitally and they can do all this stuff chad what happened (laughs) what happened was the majority of canadians realized that they weren't signed up for direct deposit with the cra and that was the major learning point so they spent all their time (laughs) on their first application for support enrolling in online banking for direct deposit (laughs) that was part of it but when it came to the fintech's ability to enable all this aid they got boxed completely out of the conversation. Nothing. It the wasn't bank. like the US where like yeah. Cabbage was able to give OPP yeah. loans, right? And under SBA. Yeah, yeah. under SBA. Yeah. And other digital banks were able to do this. Canada? They're, they wouldn't even have the conversation. Their SIBA was the 40K loan was all through major banks. Yep. It. And I've had this conversation with countless fintechs enraged about this because they're like, it took the banks in some cases a month just to get the application up online. And they're like, we could have done this in 24 hours. Yeah. And, and not, to, not to mention the fact that even one bank, maybe to remain nameless right now, but- What color is the logo? 
maybe blue. Uh, <laughs> okay, so that's down so, to two. Okay. Yeah, so they they were uh, <laughs> the way they were even giving these out through lines of credit would have circumvented some of the issues that they were trying to help and put people into like really bad positions that they haven't used it by the end of December. And like that wasn't common knowledge. So just even <sighs> the delivery of this wasn't going well. I mean, Google that. There's some there's some really interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's very one. interesting how my SIBA loan is somehow structured as a visa loan. There you go. Very strange. Well, you know what bank it is now. <laughs> so, so yeah, Edward, uh, global, con- global contrast. Countries that actually allowed their fintech sectors to help out actually had great outcomes. We didn't even have the conversation here. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and actually, very specifically, because there's a, a UK business called Kodat, who I will kind of call out that they're a London-based fintech, and they they kind of aggregate accounting data from different accounting platforms, usually for, for lenders. I know that a couple of the big UK banks, who frankly were not that well placed in terms of their digital provision for lending, stood up very, very quick pilots with Kodak to effectively digitize the front end of their lending applications. And it made a huge difference. But so, so Jason, you, your point about kind of supporting and enabling that engagement with fintechs and, and actually, Chad, you're talking about, you know, metal sitting within NatWest, which was Royal Bank of Scotland. Again, I think we're, we're seeing some really positive collaboration between the big traditional banks and fintechs. And I think we're seeing some really positive things kind of spinning out of that, which, which maybe is a, a kind of an interim step towards, towards open banking feels also like an opportunity. David, you were settled there for a second. Are you going to add something there? I mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but <laughs> look, there are countries where there's a tight relationship between the government or, or the central bank and, and big, massive traditional institutions that are doing really cool stuff like CBDC and direct payments into customer bank accounts as a form of stimulus. So I just, I just, you know, at the end of the day, I really hope the Canadian banks step step up to the plate of innovation. There's just, there's so many people who want this. There's so many fintechs, there's so many thinkers, there's so many people in law that want to make this a better situation. And, and they just have to say yes to this, a better future. Like, and it sounds silly, but it's just right there. It's right there to take. There's so many great ideas. There's, there's ways forward. There's examples. Just please, please get off the wall and, and help your country, help your, your, your consumers. That's not what the CEOs got, how they got there. No. no one ever gets promoted to bank for taking a chance. They get, they get promoted for making sure the trains run on time and getting that dividend fatter. That's all it is. But just copy what's going on in the Nordics or Britain or <laughs> China. Like it's, people are already succeeding with these ideas. Don't it's tell not like, Canadians that's a thing. Yeah. Just don't. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just live off ignorance. Like just live off the ignorance. Like I always keep saying, we have the worst case of Stockholm syndrome I've ever seen. You know, we hate, we hate our banks. Yeah, we somehow love them and we love investing in them to get a dividend. So we love the person who takes $100 from us and gives us back five cents. Someone explain this to me. Someone explain this to me. Edward, you popped up. Again, you know, I'd be kind of interested in, in your take as objective as you guys can be. We engage with a number of open banking kind of trade bodies who are in turn talking to regulators. And so there are consultations running around a form of consumer data right for Canada. We're kind of hearing two years as a, as a timescale before rubber hits the road. But, but I, you know, I'd be really keen for a firsthand view. I heard two years, two years ago. So that's my, yeah, that's my view. It's a mechanical, it's a mechanical rabbit of the dog track. No one ever quite catches yeah. it. Yeah. What was the last tweet or letter from the, the government? It was like maybe a month ago where they said, we'd like to start the conversations back up again. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's in the Canadian uh, version of this podcast, there was more optimism there in that they're seeing some progression. However, yeah. Um, how many times, how many times can you have that same conversation before you have to do something? Right. That's, that's the real question. And it's not, unfortunately in this country, it's not going to come from one industrious company that says, you know what, if I do this first, oh man, 
I am going to just make a killing because all of the infrastructure is going to be built on top of my rails and all the business I'm going to win. It's just going to make everybody else panic, right? Like there's a massive first mover advantage to this right now, but it's like everybody's playing this game of prisoner's dilemma where none of them wants to be seen as doing this at this point. It's, it's just, it's ridiculous. Well, on the Jeff, topic of first mover advantage, you know, I think you're right to be a little more positive on this. We have to thank CIBC for taking a chance on the direct feed with Zero and QuickBooks and Ceridian and, and putting their smart banking system in place. But it reminds me of the the Barclays piece where they might have been the first to move, but there are so many issues with it that it erodes confidence in the users. So much so that I had to write like a 6,000 word blog post on the pros and cons of CIBC smart banking. And writing that, it just gives you less hope and I wish that more banks would take the take the risk and do that work, but they would introduce things like having two users required to send an action, any item, whether it's a payment or a transfer, any type of move. And for a one person company with one owner, <laughs> you're now requiring them to have two different logins just to be able to, to, to action something. So yeah, like commend them on their first mover advantage, but I think you do have to follow up and you have to listen and you have to not introduce more hurdles for people to run their business. Or stop thinking, and this is the thing is that no matter how you whatever you think makes sense there's always a business out there that doesn't operate that way and for very good reason right like i'm sure i could picture the risk people like no no no, you need you need two signatures to do this that's how we're going to protect ourselves and no one said what about solo practitioners like no one in the room probably said that and then it got lashed like oh yeah huh that's too bad unintended consequences and you know I, I, again as as chad particularly given that you're living and breathing this stuff day to day i think it's easy in one way to just feel that well logically this will inevitably get better over time why when there is such precedent around the world for streamlining the process of bookkeeping and accounting for small businesses and you know big businesses you know why would it not come to all jurisdictions and yet watching the progress i can only imagine it's frustrating day to day because there's no there are no good reasons why this should take years there's nothing particularly radical or even technically challenging in, in devoting resources to this and i guess it's where we started off you know what works and what doesn't i think it's a strong a strong regulator with political will to drive change or as you see happening you know in the us with new players like Acoya and Plaid there are obviously some aggregators who are kind of gaining a level of acceptance within the market and, and a level of momentum which which just at some point makes it hard for banks not to play with them or, um, or visa for instance <laughs> well yeah visa plaid will they be one and the same i guess is, is, is well question. based on yeah well yeah, based on some of the stuff i've been reading and that's going to be a tough road <laughs> I want to say something positive, you know, because I think it's it's one thing to complain and gripe about the situation. It's another thing to propose change. I think there's an incredible opportunity in Canada. There's so much tech talent here. There's so many good ideas. We're, we're a country that understands financial services. It's just going to take the regulator getting together with the big banks to build an innovation platform. And this is a patriotic thing. I think the banking personnel, I think at the end of the day, they're patriotically love their country. They need to think about supporting their country with innovation. No, I believe this. I, I'm not, I think people are people. At the end of the day, everybody wants to be a good citizen. They need to think about this as a patriotic act. that's going to do good things for the consumer. It's going to do good things for the Canadian tech scene and financial services. And there's a way forward. So to any listeners to this, know that I believe in you. I want you to think about how to make your country better, how to make your industry better. It's possible. There's a way forward. So you're more optimistic in that than I am. But nevertheless, I will say this much. The one good thing about all this is that yeah. look at the global playground we have. Look at how many yeah. other countries 
have done this. Look at the learnings we can get, garner for what worked and what didn't work elsewhere. I mean, there's there's something to be said about being an early adopter, and, and Chad will attest to the fact that I beta test everything out there. There's something to be said about being a fast follower, which is most of the rest of the world. And there's something to be said to be about being you know a late adopter in that you ain't gonna make the same mistakes everybody else. Did. Don't get me wrong, you make your own set of mistakes, but at least the low hanging fruit of what didn't work elsewhere, like saying that you had to provide this data, but not specifying how, so then banks could be vindictive and, and make it utterly painful to do. That sort of stuff is, we've seen that trick now. We know how to plan around it. We know how to what, what didn't work and what did. So the good potential that we do have here and in any other country as well, for that matter, that's further behind on this is that we can learn. And by the time some of these vendors who've helped made this happen, basically get to these other countries like Canada and elsewhere, these systems are a little bit, they're battle tested. They're not in beta anymore. I have a question for um, David. When you think about the next milestone that's coming up for Canada and the legislation that's being put in the conversations that are happening, you know, what does a timeline look for you, look like for you when you think about sort of the next advancement that we should get excited about? Uh, for, for regulation? Yeah. I think we're, we're a country that is, is built on a history of property rights. And I think we have to pass a Data Consumer Protection Act because data is consumer property. And if we believe we're a, an open democracy and with property rights, then we need to do that. This is understood in the world. It's not up for debate. Data is property. It's the property of the people who generate that data. And so I think, in, again, this is, gets back to patriotism. Banks should be supporting this. It's, they make money off of liberal democracy property system. That's why they exist. That's why they're strong. And they need to line up and support and say at a civics level and at a at the level of it's good for them. Like it's the foundation of our society. And this is not controversial. This has been decided in other parts of the world that have the same traditions and values that we do. And we have to sort of rise to this challenge and do it as soon as possible. Yeah. I mean, I will say I've actually heard people from these institutions operate basically arguing the opposite, that it's theirs, to which I've had to they prevent myself from completely losing my mind in front of them. Any, that's any that's un-Canadian. That's an un-Canadian perspective. Well, any 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 argument to the con- yeah. to the contrary yeah. that something you create is not is you have no right to is basically is self-serving and just just without merit. So let's yeah. let's move away from that. So, gentlemen, to wrap this up before we uh, wrap up, I want to basically ask you one question: If there's there's one thing you could change. Doesn't have to be in Canada, elsewhere. Just in, in the concept of open banking that would help basically move this movement further along. What is it? What is the one thing in people's minds or in regulators' minds we have to change in order to basically make this better or make it work? So I'm going to go reverse order from where we started. Chad, or do you want me to come back to you? <laughs> no, I, I think there's a lot of smarter people that have worked a lot longer in this globally than, than definitely I have. But if I could bring it back to sort of how I, how I feel in my own circumstances with our own companies. Like we've we've had the pleasure of working with customers with Wellsimple and Coho and like Relay Bank out of Canada and now working to the US, North One. Like these are the people that are building something amazing and challenging the status quo and thinking outside of like traditional boundaries. And like as an accountant, it gives me like goosebumps working alongside of these people because they're so far ahead of what a traditional maybe bank is is dealing with. I mean, there's lots of things to work, but these guys are just moving so fast and, and so fun. So f- from my perspective, I see the cost of like regulatory hurdles. And I wish, I guess my, my wish is that as discussions are happening, um, not, not just around the acts, but around the implementations of the API stacks and of the the standards and of the like the nitty gritty details that they they go far enough to allow people to do good things 
and to push the boundaries of what Canadian ambition and just abilities allow them to do. So think about the user. Maybe that's a better way to sum it up is put yourself in a business's shoes that wants to operate nationally, globally. They want to, you know, use services that fix their own problems. And when you start doing that, you avoid some of the issues that we might have seen with early adopters. Well, and I'll tell you, it's it's the honest truth is anytime you take your your eyes off the consumer and the users, you're basically setting yourself up for long-term failure. Problem is certain industries like banking really haven't had to care or think that way in a long time. And unfortunately, the people within, you're not going to change their level of their way of thinking for quite a while. So I would say that you're absolutely right, but I think it's a cultural issue more so than we give it credit for. Edward, yourself. Yeah, hey, look, a few a few points. Um, I think one of the opportunities around open banking is genuinely to drive innovation and competition. In the absence of that, I mean, uh, David, that you've, you've talked about Google Pay and, and Apple Pay, the big players will win because they, they, they're at a scale where banks and, and, and other players cannot afford not to work with them. So they win, but but it's harder for the smaller players and the innovators to kind of come through. And so so I think Open banking from that perspective is a really important economic opportunity. And if there were some things I'd look for, I'd look for more boldness from regulators just to kind of grasp the metal and move more quickly. And then I think the next big frontier is global interoperability. So for players who wish to operate on a global basis, certainly as Zero does, it's kind of hard if we need to build different solutions in each of the regions in which we play. Getting some kind of global standardization and interoperability would be a huge win. And again, I think is a, is then a global economic opportunity. And David. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to really second that. The I may be a heretic about financial services, but I'm also a, a deep disciple of financial services and their un, their ability to just drive really positive things. I think we're sitting on on so many good outcomes here, so much potential to create financial stability, financial inclusion, financial growth, just by unlocking services that are more intelligent, that bring more people into the fold. This is an engine for growth and it's an engine for good things. And if we stop it, we're really stopping the development of humanity. And that sounds ridiculous, but you look at the history of financial innovation, it allowed boats to go to India. It allowed, you know, in Britain, it, it finally, the creation of the central bank made it a world empire, right? So anytime financial innovation happens, really cool things happen. And bubbles happen too. I'm not going to discount that, but holding financial innovation back is holding civilization back. And I think people need to internalize that. Right. Yeah, completely agree. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been great. And uh, yet another chapter in what's been a passionate and uh, amusing series that poked fun and, and been insightful. So I appreciate your time. Thank you Good so time. much for having us. Thanks, Jason. Thanks. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Edward, David, and Chad and found it informative. Frankly, as you can hear with all of these podcasts thus far, is these have become some of the more emotional and charged podcasts in terms of levels of excitement and levels of disgust and everything else. Because frankly, that is how serious of an issue this is. Open banking is not something small to debate, quite honestly. It is something that, quite frankly, is financially and economically liberating to the future of mankind. And it is something that we all need to embrace. And the people who I've spoken with, as you can see, are very passionate about that decision, are very passionate about that cause. And as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. 
You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.